0: This is the JPGN podcast for March 2009. I'm James Liu. This podcast will outline selected articles from this month's issue of the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. For more information and to access complete articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at www.naspagan.org. Our first article this month is entitled, Intestinal Microbiota During Infancy and Its Implication for Obesity, by Christoph Reinhardt et al. Obesity is a worldwide epidemic, and it's accompanied by a dramatic increase in obesity-related disorders, including type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Recent studies have shown that microbiota of the gut is a factor that regulates obesity by increasing the amount of energy harvested from the diet and by regulating peripheral metabolism. However, no one knows how obesogenic microbiotas develop and whether this developmental process is determined during infancy. The sterile fetus is born into a microbial world, and is immediately colonized by numerous species originating from the surrounding ecosystems, especially the maternal, vaginal, and fecal microflora. This initial microbiota develops into a complex ecosystem in a predictable fashion determined by internal and external factors. These factors include oxygen depletion, mode of birth, impact of environment, diet, hospitalization, and application of antibiotics. The authors of this paper discuss how the gut microbiota regulates obesity, and how environmental factors that affect the establishment of the gut microbiota during infancy may contribute to obesity later in life. Our second article is entitled, Prenatal Lipopolysaccharide Increases Postnatal Intestinal Injury in a Rat Model of Necrotizing Enterocolitis, by Peter John Gianoni et al., An increased incidence of necrotizing enterocolitis has been noted in infants born to mothers with chorioamnionitis. The authors of this paper hypothesized that newborn rat pups born to mothers exposed to prenatal lipopolysaccharide are more susceptible to intestinal injury and that dysregulation of inducible nitric oxide synthase mediates the intestinal injury. The authors gave either LPS or a control vehicle to pregnant rats, and the rat pups from each group were delivered at term and placed in the rat necrotizing enterocolitis model. A subset of pups was given either the control vehicle or aminoguanidine. Intestines were harvested and the degree of intestinal injury was graded. The authors found that maternal exposure to LPS increased the frequency and severity of intestinal injury. Furthermore, treatment with aminoguanidine significantly decreased nitric oxide levels and intestinal injury. Therefore, intestinal injury may be mediated by inducible nitric oxide synthase dysregulation. Our next article is entitled Factors Predicted of Crohn's Disease Following Colectomy in Medically Refractory Pediatric Colitis by Elisa Evers et al. Occasionally, Crohn's colitis is diagnosed post-colectomy in a patient with a presumed diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. The aim of this study was to attempt to avoid unnecessary colectomies by determining factors predictive of Crohn's disease. The authors performed a retrospective chart review looking at 212 patients who underwent colectomy. Found were 37 patients diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. The average age of these patients was 10.5 years, and the average age at colectomy was 13.6 years. The factors that were looked at were patients' weight, IBD serology, radiographs, upper endoscopy findings, and pre-colectomy therapy. Serology in these 37 patients showed that 90% were PIANCA positive, and 3% had negative serology. Of these thirty seven patients that were preoperatively diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, six were diagnosed with Crohn's disease postoperatively. All six of these patients were Pianca positive, but four had an elevated OMP C. The OMP C assay in these patients had a significantly higher mean than the ulcerative colitis group. Z score for weight at the time of surgery was significantly lower in the patients with Crohn's disease. In summary, This group advised that a lower weight and a higher OMSI titer may be predictive of Crohn's disease. Our next article is entitled Feasibility and Application of Three-Dimensional Ultrasound for Measurement of Gastric Volumes in Healthy Adults and Adolescents by Manini et al. This study attempted to address the issue of finding alternative non-radiating techniques to determine pre- and postprandial gastric volumes. The backdrop for this study is that a better way is needed to measure gastric volumes since abnormal gastric accommodation to meals can lead to dyspepsia. Using a 3D ultrasound, the authors first took gastric volume measurements on 24 healthy adolescents as the control group. As for the test population, Eleven adult gastric volumes were measured simultaneously using both a nuclear medicine scan and 3D ultrasound. One week later, a repeat 3D ultrasound alone was done on the test group. Gastric volume measurements were taken at fasting, after a 300 milliliter Ensure meal, and then at various 0 to 30 minute postprandial intervals. The results showed that 3D ultrasound accurately identifies the gastric volume accommodation of the Ensure meal. Interestingly, the 3D ultrasound measured larger coefficients of variation for gastric volume measurements than the nuclear medicine scan. The authors attributed this to the added learning curve needed to use this new 3D ultrasound technique to measure gastric volumes. Through this study, the authors raised the possibility that the 3D ultrasound may be a good alternative way of measuring gastric volume accommodation to a meal. Our next article is entitled, Bowel Habits and Toilet Training in a Diverse Population of Children by Ellen Wald et al. The objective of this study was to gather data concerning bowel habits and toilet training of developmentally normal children aged 5 to 8 years. A questionnaire containing information on age, race, and gender was completed anonymously by a parent in nine pediatric practices. Information was elicited about onset and completion of toilet training, frequency and quality of stooling, size of bowel movements, and behavioral components of defecation. Questionnaires were completed for 1,142 children. Toilet training started at a mean age of 27.2 months and was completed at a mean age of 32.5 months. Each occurred three months earlier for girls than boys, and at least six months earlier for African American than white children. 95% of children defecated either daily or every other day. Straining at defecation and infrequent stooling were reported significantly more often for girls, while staining of underclothes and passage of large bowel movements were reported more often in boys. About 10% of children fulfilled criteria for functional constipation. In summary, most children between 5 and 8 years of age have a medium-sized bowel movement daily or every other day without straining or withholding. While African-American children toilet train at an earlier age than do white children, bowel habits appear to be similar. A sizable subgroup of children presenting to primary care providers have a history consistent with constipation. Our next article is entitled Isolated Liver Transplant in Infants with Short Bowel Syndrome Insights into Outcomes and Prognostic Factors by Dominic Del Olio et al. Some infants with short gut syndrome and liver disease from progressive intestinal failure may benefit from an isolated liver transplant. The purpose of this study was to identify the risk factors for unfavorable outcomes in isolated liver transplant. Risk factors were assessed by comparing long-term survivors with those who died after an isolated liver transplant. 14 infants with intestinal failure-associated liver disease, or IFALD, received isolated liver transplants. All were dependent on parenteral nutrition, but were able to tolerate an average of 54% of calories via enteral feeds. The median residual bowel length was 60 centimeters, and eight out of 14 had an ileocecal valve. All patients had portal hypertension. Eight of the nine survivors were weaned from parenteral nutrition after a median time of 15 months. Five children who died had poor enteral tolerance following a liver transplant, of which 4 out of 5 had pre-transplant dysmotility and increased frequency of line infections pre and post-transplant. Based on these findings, the authors proposed a revised criteria for selecting which children may benefit from an isolated liver transplant. Number 1: Children with progressive liver disease may benefit from an isolated liver transplant. Number two, children with 50 centimeters of functional bowel without ileocecal valve or 20 centimeters of bowel with ileocecal valve may also benefit from an isolated liver transplant. Number three, children that receive 50 percent of their caloric intake enterally for four weeks with good growth may benefit from an isolated liver transplant. And number four, children with bowel dysmotility should be considered for a combined liver and small bowel transplant unless dysmotility is resolving and is associated with minimal line infections. Our next article is entitled Hepatitis C Infection in Children and Their Caregivers, Quality of Life, Cognitive and Emotional Outcomes by James R. Rodriguez et al. This study looked at the psychosocial aspects of children with hepatitis C and their caregivers. The authors studied various parameters, including quality of life and the behavioral, emotional, and cognitive functioning of 114 treatment-naive children. These children were the placebo arm of a multi-site clinical trial evaluating PEG interferon alpha-2a with or without ribavirin. After a baseline assessment was performed, the caregivers completed the SF-36 Health Questionnaire. This data was compared to published normative data. The significant findings included the belief by caregivers that their children's health was poor. The caregivers had higher than normal concern for their child's health and therefore more limitation of family activities. They also felt that their children had more internalizing behavioral problems, but only 2% of the children had scores in the clinical depression range. The caregivers SF-36 scores did not differ from the general population. Those caregivers that were infected with HCV did have a lower quality of life score. The authors concluded that even though the early stages of HCV infection are asymptomatic, the caregiver stress and family strain is much higher and may be associated with some cognitive changes. Our final article this month is entitled Clinical Characteristics and VPS-33B Mutations in Patients with ARC Syndrome by young Yongjang et al. ARC syndrome, which stands for arthrogryposis, renal dysfunction, and cholestasis, is a rare fatal cause of neonatal intrahepatic cholestasis that has recently been ascribed to a mutation in the VPS33B gene. The authors assessed the clinical characteristics of ARC syndrome and investigated the VPS33B mutations in Korean patients. The authors reviewed the medical records of six patients with ARC syndrome among 90 patients with neonatal cholestasis from 2000 to 2005. They assessed the relative incidence rate ratio, their clinical symptoms, and laboratory and pathologic findings. DNA samples from five patients, four parents, and two fetuses were analyzed for VPS33B mutations. The relative incidence rate ratio was one-seventh that of biliary atresia. All six patients presented with ichthyosis, recurrent infection, and failure to thrive as the main symptoms. All patients died by the age of 12 months. They had various severities of cholestasis, metabolic acidosis, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, chronic diarrhea, platelet abnormalities, and central nervous system anomalies. The authors identified one novel splice site mutation, two frameshift mutations, one nonsense mutation, and one known nonsense mutation in the VPS33B gene prenatal diagnosis was performed in two different families. In summary, this study indicates that the incidence of ARC syndrome is not as rare as previously thought. The authors found four novel mutations and one known mutation in ARC syndrome patients and performed prenatal diagnosis in two families, which will facilitate genetic diagnosis and counseling for affected families. Finally, this issue of JPGN features the presentation of several awards. The 2008 Schwachman Award goes to Dr. M. Michael Thaler. The 2008 NASPAGAN Distinguished Service Award goes to Dr. Richard Colletti. And the 2008 Murray Davidson Award goes to Dr. J. A. Perman. This concludes the JPGN podcast for March 2009. The executive producer is Daniel Gelfond. The editor-in-chief of JPGN is Eric Sibley. The JPGN podcast is recorded by the Pediatric GI Fellows of Stanford University. For more information and to access full articles, please visit us online at www.jpgn.org or visit our society webpage at (music) www.naspagan.org.